0: Welcome to Rigo's Business Review, where we bring you the latest in leadership, business, and tech. I'm your host, Carl Rigo. Join us each week as we share unexpected insights and underreported stories from the world of business to inform, uplift, and inspire, and make you think. Hello and welcome to the podcast. If you've ever wondered what it's like to be a chair of a publicly listed company, you're in luck. Uh, our guest this week is, has a very impressive background, is uh, Frank Lewis. He has, he's had more than 20 non-executive chair and director roles and has been involved in numerous IPOs, initial public offerings, and has been featured on television and in the Sunday Times. Those in the know have described Frank as a rare breed and one of the most experienced chairman and non-executive directors on the AIM, which is a, a part of the London Stock Exchange. And uh, They said that he has a lot of experience in working with overseas companies and brings a wealth of insights. Also, Frank has founded and established a business from zero to uh, revenue to, to an AIM listing, took a startup media business to over £150 million market capitalization within 10 months, which was the largest IPO to date at the time. Uh, so that's quite an introduction. Frank, welcome to the show. Is there anything you'd add to that, that uh, brief biography?
1: I, I can't add more. You've been you've, you've been very kind and flattered me there.
0: <laughs> I'm just relaying the facts. As I say, just the facts, sir. So great. So again, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Frank and I we have a few things in common. I I know Frank from the Chairman's Network. We're both members there. I'm I'm chair of a of a relatively small private company and Frank has chaired a number of publicly listed organizations. Like I say, there are levels to this game. So Frank has worked on much bigger platforms than myself, so I wanted to have him on the show to share some of his insights. Plus, he's a, he's a very engaging guy, and, and I've always appreciated his comments when we were in the boardroom together in the Chairman's Network. So uh, Frank, could you tell us a bit more about what you do currently?
1: Uh, what I do currently, I, uh, I sit on the board of two companies at the moment. Uh, one is a real estate company listed on AIM, and it's in Ukraine. <laughs> and uh, the other one is a very interesting uh, software company I've got, I went on which we floated in june that has developed uh, omnichannel software for retailers to give customers a seamless approach when they're purchasing whether online um in the store on the phone and it's very promising and it's uh, looking uh, quite good at the moment it's early stage but it's got a some very sub- some very substantial customers at the moment uh, on their books
0: great now we're going to come i I will ask you a bit about ukraine in a moment just to say on some of these company boards my understanding is that you you sit on those boards alongside some other fellow heavy hitters former chairs and and exec chief executives of other foot 100 companies so you're in quite good company and we are in good company to have you today So I do want to ask just just a moment. I I couldn't dive in without just asking you for a headline or two on on your experience of being on the board of a company with operations in Ukraine. Can only imagine what that's been like for the employees on the ground there? And what what has your experience been like?
1: Uh, Well, fortunately, um, you know, it's a listed company. I can't say very much. Sure. Uh, But uh, all I can say is positively that the buildings and everything still around, still there, and uh, the people are safe. And that uh, it's it's starting to re in uh, the building operations in Kiev, and they and uh, a lot of the shopping centers are being visited. Okay.
0: All right. Well, uh, fingers crossed. And um, obviously, everyone I think everyone's holding that region yeah. kind of in their prayers and hearts and minds. Okay. So let's move on to kind of more upbeat topics where we can, which is so. What was it that inspired you to get into this this line of work that you're doing, working on all these different company boards? And what do you most enjoy about it? What have you most enjoyed about it over the years?
1: Well, uh, why I got involved, uh, maybe accidentally or not, but uh, you know, over the years of, of of being involved in companies as a finance director, uh, CEO, chairman here and in South Africa, I I built up a lot of experience, and I found that um, those experiences could be beneficial to companies, especially private companies and AIM companies, as they're growing, With uh, because not many people have been through what I've been through in the diverse businesses. I regard myself as a, a specialist generalist in a way, in the sense of the, the various uh, businesses I've been on board. And uh, I believe that uh, that's my big one of the biggest... Uh, competitive advantages compared to people who've been in very narrow businesses. Um, If you want to elaborate further on that particular issue, if you like me at this stage, uh, you know, businesses moved on and uh, people who've been only involved in one certain sector of businesses, uh, uh, I think things have moved on from change from there that people today, boards today need to have a diverse board, people with specialist in, uh, industry experience, and come from other industries to add value and, and, and look at things in a different way, uh, and, and it's been proven that adds value to the companies. I always quote, I remember many years ago, I was reading an article by Harvard Business Review, which uh, and which basically they said there, the company people come from one industry to another, do better than incumbents sometimes, because they ask, in inverted commas, the stupid questions. And I think that's been a, one of my advantages in the way I've conducted myself and assisted companies in looking at things in a different way and improving the profitability and the human and conceptual skills.
0: Absolutely. I've, I've, I've worked in a number of different industries as well. And I think the cross-pollination oftentimes is what some of my clients and in, in the boardroom, they appreciate that because it's hard to get that broader perspective yeah, when you're working yeah, in your silo. Absolutely. Great and okay, so we're we're want to I want to I'm dying to ask you some questions about what are the qualities of an effective chair and, and, yeah. and your experience what is you know how, your experience in, in in taking companies public and everything. I want to start out a bit more to personalize things and find out a bit more about you. So if we step back a bit, could you tell us a bit more about your career okay. journey. And and one of the points I so just to say another thing we have in common. You could talk about your background is we've all shared some interest in passion for amateur wrestling in our younger days, which may feed into your discussion. But really curious about your kind of early your career progression and how you okay. came to do the work you okay.
1: Did I hear correctly say you were an amateur wrestler as well?
0: Yes, I was back in the day, very mm-hmm. amateur. Oh, that's
1: very interesting. Uh, I am originally from South Africa and uh, I lived in Cape Town. There, I qualified as a chartered accountant. And once I qualified, I left uh, practice and I went into business. And my first roles were like, seven, a few roles as a financial director, one in a large company that manufactured plastic netting, like you seen supermarkets that put fruit and that in. Another one was in foam, made all well, the biggest foam cup manufacturer in South Africa. And then I moved on to the largest importer of products into South Africa. And after that, I met a, somebody who, and we built up, a, we started building up a, in those days, I'm talking about 30 years ago, well, uh, a computer bureau. Uh, it didn't have PCs and all that type of stuff and et cetera, whereby uh, we, uh, produce financial information for companies, p and balance sheets, and all that stuff on a monthly basis. And at the same time as that, I uh, uh, one of my clients was a guy who started little business uh, in, uh, in uh, retail stores, uh, selling uh, in those days uh, basic IBM uh, PCs, which was very basic <laughs> in those days. I liked it and I don't know why I got involved and I was acting as a consultant and we built over the year to year. After a year, I went more into the business and we built up and I raised some money and we built up more businesses around South Africa over three years. And the end of the three, four years, we were one of the largest man- retail of computer equipment of that ilk in South Africa. And I managed to get it listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. And uh, after... Um, while we were approached by a major major um industrialist in that area who wanted to buy us and we decided to sell and uh after that i um with this, my, my family decided that we, should, we wanted to emigrate and we then uh, we had young children and we came to the uk uh talking about sporting elements on the way we in south africa uh i um i come from a family of wrestlers my father I a professional amateur wrestlers i wrestled for i was an amateur wrestling champion and i was also a very uh, up to a very good uh, 100 meters in those days 100 yards sprinter mm. and uh when i was a good rugby player when when i had to be when i was in the, got conscripted into the army which we had to do in those days also played for the army defense team and i did very well and um uh then when I went to university I uh in our days uh we had to be article to a firm of accountants and work during the day, go the evening, so I had to decide whether I was gonna become an accountant or a rugby player or a wrestler. And uh so that's uh my sporting area at that time. And uh then I came to the UK and uh started basically again because I didn't have British ancestry, started again and uh started working for a first role was for a residential property group which after a year or two we decided to float the aim was in its infancy then and i floated that company, my first aim float
0: and could i could i just pause you there for one moment frank and just ask you if you would to because our audience is quite international as well i'm based in london we're both based in london however just give a few uh headlines on what the aim market is and what kind of why it was formed and where okay. it exists within the london stock exchange
1: okay uh AIM uh, is, uh, was created at that time because the, the London market before that was a main market whereby big companies were floated and had to have a certain value. It's, uh, then they said it's, AIM stands for Alternative Investment Market, AIM. And they were, people decided that it felt it was, there was a demand for a market for smaller companies where businesses could perhaps raise money learn to be a public company the management and uh, also use it to make to raise money for acquisitions and eventually once they've served their apprenticeship if you could use that term in the best way uh, move on to the main market and that's why aim was created for that type of particular business uh who were not at the level of a main market uh didn't have the infrastructure the, and, the, and the profitability of a main market company
0: great and what sort of over the years uh, what what sort of profile of company what tended to be the size in terms of rev in terms of revenue turnover of market oh, it' well, and- gone
1: astronomical i mean those days when it started off the size of the company had a market cap of 10 million 20 million and it's gone up rightly or wrongly over the years uh, to get companies on the market at the moment with a billion dollar market cap Right. million pound market cap i should say mm-hmm. uh which right. is wrong because those companies should move up to the main market right and uh, they're doing it for various reasons if you listed on the AIM market you as far as i remember excuse me rightly you don't you, you're not liable for inheritance tax for example i see and uh, that type of thing so people are still utilizing those advantages but the average size of a company on aim at the moment i would assume it'd be like a. Uh, Oh, hundred million market cap or something like that hundred and fifty million market cap
0: right okay, great, so just a little divergence there, but wanted to provide that context, but back to your story, so you came to the u k you joined this other company, tell us what sort of company it was again if a you residential
1: remember. property company
0: right residential property company, and then they were on the path as well toward a listing as well is that right
1: no well they oh, were right. they just for things and they were they somehow otherwise way I can't remember where why we decided to list it, and they were on the market but the problem is the issues there that uh, didn't last long on the market because you know you either want to be a listed company and undress yourself which is another subject we can talk about yes or or, or you find that you don't want people it doesn't suit you and i think the the shareholders of the major shareholders that decided after a year or two, that didn't suit them, and they delisted.
0: Right. Okay. Oh. Well, just just tangentially tying it into the news from today, a little controversial, but um, everyone's watching. Elon Musk, who took a stake in yeah. Twitter, yeah. and then and then they offered him, they tried to kind of, uh, to, I guess, to protect themselves, or they tried to kind of limit. They said, if you take a board seat, you're limited to 14%, 15% of shares and whatnot. So he, de- he declined the board seat and then came out with a 100% offer to buy them outright, take them private, and transform the model because – he believes and i would agree that uh twitter uh is not is not as kind of um fair and balanced as it could be so they could reassess the model now yeah. but um so there, there are some actions some companies are better suited to private versus public uh but just coming back
1: it's a, in my experience and i've been through it a few times or twice it depends on the shareholders and what they want a lot of them fully don't fully comprehend the what is required and how to conduct themselves when they list a company, and they think they can still run it as a private company, but have the trappings of a public company and raise money. And my experience is, uh, which we can come to that later. I mean, from in terms of the the corporate governance structure, you need a non-exec chairman, you need non-executive directors on the boards in order to comply. And a lot of them think they could overcome uh, over what's the word i'm thinking not, uh, although they're there ignore them and they're just there for show and uh, it doesn't work because at the end of the day uh if you if you're worth your salt and you and you and you know what you're doing you will vote with your feet yeah, um, as, a, as a shareholder uh, or as a director and move right. on you're not, com- you will not you're not being allowed to comply and, and, and with, your, with the rules of corporate governance if 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 the major shareholder who's normally the CEO who's built a business does things the way he wants to without going through proper board approval and other approvals which is required in terms of good corporate governance.
0: Right, well, okay, now, okay, so I think we may have to uh, I want to dive into the, the part about the qualities of a good share and you're getting into a lot of that because you live and breathe this stuff which is one of the things that impressed me about you in our other conversations is that it's always top of mind for you. In terms of the qualities of a good share, you always – it's just it, – you just come out with it right away because it's its what you do day to day. So I do want to just – if you could bring us up to date, up to sp- finish the second half of your bio there. So you came to the U.K., you're working with this particular company that delisted, and then you've had n- multiple director and non-exec yeah, yeah. director roles. Uh, what else would you include in that final um, portion I'm of that part? i have been
1: director, chairman of uh, several companies, including international companies. I've been chairman of company two companies in China, in Africa – in uh, eastern europe and in tasmania i've been involved in uh, a few sectors from mining to tech to manufacturing to retail to wholesale and i've, I've got the scars and the t-shirts as they say <laughs> 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 I've build up all these experiences which are use for the benefit of companies on boards i serve
0: great and i know you have some really fascinating stories from those experiences which we're going to get into in a moment but i want to get into the big question now so uh, bearing in mind what you just said what, what would you say are the what are the qualities well i guess we should talk about what talk about the role of the chairperson first yeah. and then let's get into the the qualities of an effective chair
1: i mean uh the role of the chairman has become much higher in profile over the years and so has the expectations and therefore quite rightly today stakeholders require more involved energetic and uh evolved and an energetic uh chairman whose role is more more than merely looking after the corporate governance process that's fundamentally and one of the major roles of a chairman today or major attributes is his relationship with the ceo a relationship which must be based on openness and transparency and each party knows their effective uh, roles Uh, a good, chairman, a good chairman today um, needs to have a good understanding of the business he's in. He needs to be able to have, he could communicate with, a, with what, is, uh, uh, what, is, uh, what is needed and uh, have a good uh, relationship uh, with the CEO and uh, be able to challenge in the right way. A chairman that is deemed ineffective is one who believes he's there to run the business on a day-to-day basis, as opposed to merely guiding and challenging, and uh, and that doesn't work. Um, fundamentally, the role of the chairman is to ensure the business is well run, but not to run the business.
0: Brilliant. And,
1: and the characteristics today of a good chairman is one who needs who's got a uh, who's who's got a good. Um, good he's a good listener uh, who's uh, got good communication skills good clear sense of direction uh has, has a, can see the big picture uh is good at governance broad experience sound business acumen able to get the get the confidence of the of, of stakeholder, of his shareholders and be able to get uh, able to see the key issues of the business unit quickly
0: right okay and just before we get into some of the follow-on kind of commentary around that you were describing the role of the chairperson so i know that you've with your, your particularly with the publicly listed companies you are you have a reputation. Well, tell me what you're known for we've talked about it before but in terms of the compliance and the governance and, and all of that and tell us a bit about what you're known for as a chair in the industry
1: well I'm, i think i'm known for a straight talking person uh who um uh, uh, who who you know i i see things quickly i i i like to work with people and part of teams and and build good charisma uh good uh, team spirit and to make sure that everybody fully understands and i and the way to do it as far as i'm concerned is to show them what my what i do and the way i conduct myself and get their respect because that's vitally important uh in in a business to get the respect of the people around the table and uh that you can then uh uh challenge in a constructive and positive way uh you know it's um uh, uh, a lot of uh, as i am known as a, as i say as a straight talking person and uh a lot of people you know you either um sort of thinking you either either accepted or not accepted and uh uh, that's the way it is uh, in the market. But generally speaking, I'm mean, regarded as the breath of fresh air in a lot of businesses.
0: Because you're such a straight shooter and you call as you see it and people know where they stand, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and we've also talked about the fact. I'll just to say because I you don't strike me as the most self-promotional type of gentleman. Now, just to say, uh, from having spoken with you, you've been involved in uh, you've been at, you've held over twenty uh, non-exec sort of and director sort of roles in various companies, public and private. And part of your reputation from what we discussed before was that none of the companies you've been involved with have ever had any sorts of compliance governance sort yes. of challenges while you've been
1: involved with them. I'm very pleased and very grateful, or I don't know what the right word is, mm-hmm. but all the companies that I've been involved in as a chairman or non-exec director, while I've been serving on the boards, never had a problem complying with a, a, a compliance problem with AIM rules, never had a problem with any uh, issues revolving involving any accounting issues, any issues involving uh, not, uh, not getting, uh, giving correct information uh and uh part of my skills or attributes i see things very quickly and by just looking at things and figures and balance sheets and various i can then and the way i want it done uh gives me information quickly to understand what's going on and i see things very quickly if things have need to be amended or changed but fundamentally so far touch wood none of my businesses have had a problem in terms of presentation in terms of compliance with aim rules any fraudulent issues or any other issues of that regard.
0: Fantastic. So I want to talk a little bit more. You you touched on the so – I want to ask you about the culture of a company and the role of the chair in helping to, to shape that. I also want to talk a bit more about – you talked about the distinction in the roles between the chair and the CEO and, and what the role of the chair is to make sure the business is well run but not to run the business. And then, how does that sit alongside the CEO? One of the questions I've, I've got, uh, you may know Peter Wayne, who used to be the director of the CBI, I guess the Confederation for uh, British Industry. And he says that one, good, one, one bit of good practice he's seen is that the chair should not have an office in the same building as a CEO, for example. <laughs> what, what do you think of that? And have you experienced that?
1: Well, you know, first of all, a, non, a chairman should be a non executive director. And normally, you shouldn't be in the same building. Otherwise, he's, a, he's an executive. Uh, so, I haven't had that experience because all my roles have been non-executive chairman. So, it's just fortuitous, or maybe whatever the case may be. So, um, uh, maybe there's a point there, because you see things from a different point of view. It's cold. You don't, you're not involved in the day-to-day every minute, which maybe gets you immersed in something. With a, you know, looking at it from look, and you look at things in a different way.
0: Right. Well, and one of the things I picked up probably from the chairman's network or some other, my experience is the, tell me if you agree with this, but this, the, the CEO runs the business and the chair kind of runs the board. So, and so we've got that. And then also we've got some other cast of characters on the board. You've got the other non-executive directors and I know you've, you've held a number of, so you've been the non-exec chair yourself. Uh, kind of orchestrating with the board and then you have other non-executive directors there. You've also been in the non-executive director seat with another chair and things like that. So how do you see the role of the chair working with the other non-executive directors on the board vis-a-vis the, the other executive management team?
1: Well the most important thing is that uh, the non executive director the non exec chairman must have experience and be able to earn the respect. Of the other non-executive directors and people on the board, and that's fundamental. If that is the case, then everything works starts working well, and the team works together in order to uh, to make it happen the right way. I mean, I, wish, I don't know if you're going to come to it, but fundamentally, by the role of the chairman is to work together with the non-execs in terms of good corporate governance and that. Requ- and if the listed company, you need to have uh, an order, uh, order uh, non-executive uh, uh, chairman of the audit committee. You need a non-executive chairman of a remuneration committee. Uh, that's the two fundamentals. And uh, today, uh, as we should, uh, might have mentioned it now, you need, today, it's also being added, you need, uh, there's a risk committee, which, of with, especially in regard to cyber risk, which people need to uh, look at, and as part of the role of the non-execs to ensure that it's been applied. And as well today, which is a fundamental issue and it's come worldwide is this ESG situation, environmental, social, and governance. And at one stage, it was the role perhaps of the audit committee to make sure that it's been adhered to. But today, in terms of good corporate governance, it's the role of the board as a whole to ensure that the ESG policies are being adhered to and worked upon and reported on. And what is happening further today is that institutional investors are looking to invest in your company look at your company through through two denominators one is called the non-financial denominator which is esg and the financial denominator what your profitability is going to look like over the next few years and unless they satisfy that both are being complied with some institution will not invest in your company
0: absolutely they're calling that dual or, or double materiality yeah, financial and non-financial, absolutely, and that's an area I, I work pretty closely in. Okay, so and you're so we're seeing that now. And just just to step back for a minute, in my I know we've got we've got the corporate governance code. I've got it on my desk here and things. It, I like to keep things simple, uh, as Einstein said, everything should be made as simple as possible, and no simpler. So in my mind, when I walk around, and I'm a board advisor and I'm chair of a small company, and I advise a lot of other boards. I've advised FTSE companies as well on their ESG and things over the years and strategy. What my headline rule of three: What are boards responsible for? What do they do? They do strategy, governance, and performance. And then you can bolt on their remuneration as well, right? They they can they appoint and remove directors, and they they help to sense check to set the strategy. They keep the governance. And in my mind, again, probably oversimplifying, wink, wink. Tell me, Frank, if you would add something to this. When I think of governance, because I cut my teeth in governance uh, at Johnson and Johnson, helping to coordinate. Uh, activities across a number of their portfolio companies. To me, what it was about was, yes, demonstrating that things were in control and also uh, having a a a process and to to make good decisions. How do you make good decisions? There's a lot more to it than that in, in a public listed company, but from my perspective, a quick and dirty definition in my mind is if we're doing those things, we're we're adhering and we're in control. We have our processes, and then we make good decisions. We've got and you know there's a lot more to it, but that's kind of my sum, sum, summary. Would you add much to that in terms of if people people maybe who are not on boards themselves, they wonder what goes on in those boardrooms. Uh, there's that, and also related to that, I have another question here. I slipped into the interview, which is <laughs> from a practical perspective, what, what, how do you, what makes for an effective board meeting? In terms of the the mechanics, and then the meeting agenda, and even the good board pack. We always hear so much about these oh. super long board board packs because everyone wants to cover their backside, and they're not necessarily. It's getting into too much management detail, and it's not it's not enough the thirty thousand foot view for the the board. But tell me, I rolled a lot in there, but your sense of having is an
1: issues that I guess the new and new things I'd like to mention as well. Sure. Uh, I'm not a one for in terms of board packs. Uh, I'm a one for in keeping it as, read uh, millions of pages, it doesn't help because uh, people sometimes just want to hear what they listen to their voices at a board meeting. And uh, at the end of the day, nothing particularly happens. Uh, I mean, at the board meeting, which I'd like to have normally once a month, uh, you need to ensure that the, that each executive director reports on what he's what any issues of interest for the for the for the board to understand and digest be it in terms of sales in terms of uh capital expenditure approvals in terms of um any issues of uh, in the that 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 affecting employees or the company etc and uh what i like to see in the financial pack is uh um obviously the month the p accounts which is actual for the month the actual budget and compare year to date and budget and uh, what i also like to see is a forward cash flow for the next six months but what i also like what people not many companies do i like to see actual results each month put next to each other on, uh on a schedule as, as so that one can ascertain the financial look at the financial results, including overheads individually, so that you can see there's any major material differences each month, and highlight if there's something happening in the business. And uh, I find it very, I find that particular schedule very useful in determining. It's like a, it's like a graph in figures, and one can see any movements that are they're not normal in terms of say overheads and that, that type of and things uh going forward and i've always found that really useful in finding error issues to discuss or finding people trying to be things not working out correctly
0: right that relates to that relates to a, an idea that, that i've been entertaining lately which is that we as business leaders need more sensitive signals so yes. if you're doing that monthly and you're getting down to that level of granularity you can spot a trend or an inflection point more quickly than others. It's like during the 2008 financial crisis, Goldman Sachs was, was marking their assets to market at the end of every day, whereas other banks are doing it weekly or monthly. So Goldman Sachs could get a better view on the value and they could see where the market was turning. Yeah. So they saw the inflection point before others, for example. I think that's brilliant. Okay, go ahead, Karen. Uh,
1: further, I think in today's environment, in terms of what's happening in the world, in terms of financial issues, economic issues, or political, geopolitical issues, I think boards need to be more adaptable. And by that, I mean more adaptable in the workplace. And what I mean by that is that boards need to basically uh, anticipate what's happening around them and uh, analyse what's happening around them to a degree so that they can understand what's happening, what to do. And once they've done that particular lot, they might indeed decide to accelerate their views quicker in the board, in the business, to take advantage or of, of issues, what's happening around the world, uh, and and cetera. And finally, uh, in my opinion, boards then, once they've decided on these issues or looked at it, reviewed it, they might have to adapt their business to the new issues which has come up out of analysis and anticipation going forward in order to... Uh, in order to maximize the 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 profitability and to ensure that the company's um um purpose and values which were set out originally uh, and profitability uh, will be adhered to and carried out
0: right okay we had touched on this in a prior conversation which you talked about kind of the four a's so would yeah. that would that be a- analyze, anticipate, accelerate, adapt, or would you put them in different order? But yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so then, and how do you day to day, because you've done this, you've lived this, how do you bring that to life in the boardroom? What sort of resources do you use? Or how do you make sure you get the right mix of elements and people and perspectives and viewpoints to allow a company to anticipate? I absolutely agree as a strategist, I always say that uh one of the elements of strategy and, and role of a leader is to anticipate so how, how do you go about doing that day-to-day what sort of information do you well, use? I, I, you have in,
1: you have meetings with the the management uh uh, in pers- uh not uh, formal meetings for them to fully understand what you're trying to achieve what's happening in the business world and get them to come back and understand what you mean by i uh, have to anticipate issues what's happening take in account uh like, for example, what's was happening in Ukraine at the moment uh for example that's going to be the whole costs are going up because of no wheat exported as an example, or other issues in other areas not it's not happening, and how they, and that's going to impact a, a, on the business going forward if it does, I'm just using that as an example, it could be other products or other things sure. mm-hmm. and uh and how it's going to in, impact on the business and going an to impact on the uh, and, and do an analysis of that and how it's going to affect the profitability down forward. And uh, and if necessary, you might have to uh, initially accelerate the uh, uh, acquiring or, or changing the, the business format to cater for something uh, going forward. And then, uh, as I said, uh, lastly, adapt the business because of the change of the format to try and keep the business on an even keel and profitability going up.
0: Okay. and And so... In practice, because I'm a how guy, it, probably the, it's probably the engineer in me. So, in terms of day to day, what I'm hearing is that is is it, it's partly a mindset thing, where that you're you're challenging and supporting the management team to maybe look a bit up and out beyond the day to day operations, yeah, and look up and out and reflect and think and with the board and others about about what may what what factors may affect the business beyond yeah. what's happening day to day. Yes. So there's a mindset there, and then and then you're reaching out to other individuals. Do you have any favorite sources of information? Like I, I read the FT, Economist, other yeah, sorts of things. What do you mean, kind of
1: as the usual stuff. It's the FT. It's the Economist, as you say. It is talking to uh, uh, various chambers of commerce. Maybe it's looking around the world, what's reported internationally, uh, at what's going on, and then. Bear that all in mind, and taking it with more penetration into those things, in order to try to understand how it's going to impact on your business.
0: Yes, absolutely. I find you've got you you have been on boards, as you mentioned, in different countries, so China, Africa, and and Eastern Europe, and things like that. You still are now, and and I find when I so I'm 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 chair of a company that has a presence in China, for example, and I'm I'm from the U.S. originally, so I, I keep an eye on those three kind of markets. And that really kind of helps me get a sense of what's happening. I find more so than when I talk to a company that's simply UK focused, they may not realize, for example, um, I went to a talk, Adair Turner, Lord Turner in the UK, talked about um, he had a book called Between Debt and the Devil. And he mentioned in there that he he was involved in, in the banking regulatory system in the UK. He said, look, realistically, when the US central bank raises interest rates, it has more of effect on the UK market than when the UK central bank Raises UK interest rates. So if you're not paying attention to that global perspective, you're going to be missing something, which I thought was very interesting. Okay, so let's come back to. We talked before. I think we touched a bit about to touch on culture a bit. I think
1: that's, uh, a, that's the thing I wanted to wave you to finish. Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, the overarching thing is is culture, and you talked about China. Uh, the in my experience, as I've been chairing of two Chinese companies. The biggest issue I found was the culture issue. In the way they operate in China, which I had to learn obviously and see how to deal with it because it impacted on on the listing and how they behaved and My experience with Chinese companies at one stage the, the aim market was inundated with Chinese companies about seven five six seven years ago but over the after a while uh for cultural reasons in my opinion, mainly, they thought they could become billionaires overnight and still run the business as a private company and it wasn't happening. I got disillusioned and everything else changed. And a lot of them were delisted from the stock market. I see. Okay.
0: So for those particular companies, mm-hmm. so that, so that's an aspect of that's where corporate culture and and country culture can enter. And I would, I would say probably to be fair, that's probably maybe there's some self-selection there. The individuals who'd run those companies who chose to list on a may have been looking, maybe it was a get rich quick sort of play in yeah, their yeah, mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it, but you, you, you had another interesting story about your experience of another company in China, and then I guess yes, you've got yes, other. Yes. So that's uh, – we, we don't want to paint – we don't want to tar the, the Chinese market. We're not saying that – we don't mean to be overly negative about China, but it just happens to be you've got some interesting stories related. to that I market. Yeah. Do
1: <laughs> so you paint.
0: want to tell that story? So about well, what, when, if, how things can go wrong as a chair and, or an NED and how you, how you can respond. I was chairing
1: a company that assembled mobile phones in Shenzhen, in that area, and was good, running very well. And uh, one day I got a call from my non-exec there saying that uh, the CEO's gone, run away, I don't know why. And there was 500 people rioting in the factory. And uh, we had to call in the police to do what was necessary and uh, then uh, I closed the factory down and we had to obviously delist the company. Fortunately, the company was in a solvent condition and we managed to salvage everything and uh, do a voluntary winding up. Quite interesting that just struck me. That company was an English ch- company in the in Channel Islands, which a Chinese company reversed in. So it made it easier because the holding company was in was in was in England. It was in England area. So we managed to delist the company, voluntary wind it up. Nobody, uh, nobody's ever done that. I think was the first to ever do something like that, as far as I understand, with a Chinese company and. Uh, when we folded everything up and everybody went off peacefully
0: wow because sometimes those windups can become quite acrimonious
1: yep yep i had two very good non-execs in in in, in china one was actually a china this guy One was an australian guy who lived in shanghai so it was very nice it helped a lot
0: right wow well, okay so you've seen that and then what about other other sorts of experiences where like a colleague of mine was chair of a volunteer organization and he for his for his sins he was brought in as the chair and then he was asked to promptly the whole rest of the board were in cahoots and promptly they they asked and they tasked him with removing the ceo and replacing the ceo which took an, <laughs> an inordinate amount of his time but have you I, I, as part of the board it's routine to have to appoint and sometimes remove directors yeah and and, and what how what has that experience been like for you how do you I manage that
1: too much of a bad experience there okay. i mean um Obviously, the annual general meetings, board, uh, directors need to be available to stand to be re-elected, and sometimes one or two, sometimes it's happened for whatever reason that uh, some major shareholders has taken a dislike to somebody and, and voted him off. But then you've got to deal with it. But that's not a major issue, and that's it's normal. You know, normally know know about it before that before it happens, so that you can make plans. Okay. And uh, but uh, uh, the only other, um, I'm just thinking um it's only happened once or twice but generally speaking uh uh no i uh i've had one experience whereby i i, I was asked to be a, a chairman of a of a company involved in in eastern europe whereby the ceo was one of these gentlemen who i mentioned who thought he could run it like his ad them, and i decided to the agm not to stand again
0: Oh, I see. Okay, so you so you stood down yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Okay, just one other point on that. So, so you and I both know a gentleman named John Hart who who does a lot of board advisory the Chairman's Network. I think he's an Australian, and he mentioned he he characterizes to sort of wrap up the, the relationship between the chair and the CEO. He says it should be friendly, but not they should be friendly with one another, but not friends yes and that's because they needs to need there needs need to they need to maintain a degree of independence in order to do their roles and their job, their respective yeah. Yeah. roles right would you agree with that
1: i would agree with john on I, I very i respect his views a lot and uh i think the role, the role of the chairman and the non exec should be clearly stated there should be um, a clear distinction between their two roles uh, so that each party knows his responsibility and uh, I don't believe, as you say, they should be friends because it could cause other problems. But they should have mutual respect for each other.
0: Right. Absolutely. Okay. So let's segue now. I want to talk a bit more about your experience, and we're just getting to the point where we're going to get into the details about getting a company ready for an IPO, initial public offering. But before we do that, out of my own personal interest, I I want to know more about. I'm really curious to know more about your experience of being a non-executive director for private equity held companies (laughs) and venture capital trust backed companies, and how that how that differs from some of the other sorts of companies you've been involved with?
1: Okay, uh, I haven't been involved in many private equity companies too. Many more being in private companies or listed companies. And fundamentally, there's a there's an issue of men, of mentality or ethos of a private equity company works compared to a a listed company. A, a, a private equity company's more interest is there the non executive just to look after the interest more of the major shell. normally the one shelled or major shall be the private equity company. And to show that there's the companies have been run in a reasonable way and give early warnings, uh, because the, the private equity company wants to be out in three years time. He's not taking a long-term view. You want to double, treble his money and get the hell out and then pass it on. Uh, whereas the, um, if you're a non-exec of a listed company, it's a different mentality. You're there taking a longer-term view and you're ensuring that the company's complying with all the various uh, rules which we mentioned earlier in terms of corporate governance, in terms of ensuring the company's uh uh, fun, uh making the correct profit it should continue to make its profitability well that applies to private equity as well ensuring that the company's uh board of directors are adequate and growing because sometimes board of directors as the company grows they you reach a level of your own incompetence and you don't right. and you know you're not growing with your company you might have to make changes that have quite often in aim companies that start off small and grow yes so it depends where a company is in its history and whatever the case may be you've got to as a if you're a seasoned chairman or non-exec you've got to understand that and make sure you're fully aware of it and do what is necessary for the benefit. Because you're looking because you have a role to play in looking after the benefit of all shareholders incidentally at uh, this stage i'll just mention unless you're going to mention it before the non-exec directors have the same responsibilities as, a, as an executive director in terms of the companies act section 172 you have a fiduciary duty to promote the interests of all stakeholders and and that's a role whether you're a non-exec or a man or executive director
0: Right. Okay. I want to come back to you on the, the whole private equity outlook. So we, when we talked uh, earlier, you mentioned that So, the, in that instance, some of the private equity firms are looking for an exit in two, three years, and they may be looking for a 3x or a 4x return at that time. So during that hold period, w- would you characterize the how, how would you characterize the, the the imperative and the urgency for what they call kind of bending that growth curve to reaching that 25, 30-plus percent growth rate per year, which can be higher than the average listed company, some yeah. of them, yeah. So how, what does that culture feel like on the board there when, there's, when the well, clock is ticking? Well,
1: it's a very interesting question. I mean, the the the, the 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 private equity got people looking for, as I say, a quick exit three years, and if the company has to take bigger risk or uh, gear up more in order to achieve it, because they'll know they'll get out and, and, and funds can be raised later. They will, they will perhaps uh, allow it. Whereas if you're the non-exec director of a, a listed company, you'd have to look at things slightly different in terms of the balance sheet structure, ensuring that the shareholders are more protected and that uh, you're you're running it uh, on a more, I don't know if the right word is conservative basis, but you're running it for a longer term going forward.
0: Right, different time horizon, different uh, presumed hold period, then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, now let's get to the kind of the heart of the matter here, which is that that process of leading a company through their initial public offering and, and issuing shares for the first time, going public on at one of the exchanges. So, you, you talked earlier about your experience in doing your first IPO there with a the company in Johannesburg. I want you know talk, I want to know a bit more about so you you've worked there and then you've been involved in, in a, a number of other ones uh numerous numerous IPOs. So what's it like I guess at headline level? I'm curious about the, the how how you kind of go through the process of doing that and also what is it what's the feel like within the company? Does it does it can does it can you sense the momentum building as you're running toward that final year toward IPO?
1: Well, uh, it's a hell of a subject this. Yes. Um, We've got time today. <laughs> okay, let's talk about it on the basis of the UK, sure, uh, sure. as well and mainly AIM. um should companies as they grow, and uh, you got the the founder of a company as it grows. He, after a stage, he 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 will he'll, he'll, he'll review his position and just, and perhaps decide what is his aspirations and what does he want down the line. He's got two, he can continue as it is and have a good lifestyle. He can try and grow it quicker by uh, acquisition. He can try and and uh, grow it further by uh, perhaps raising money, do an IPO if you, and, and he's got further aspirations. Or he can do a trade sale and then sell out and live and uh, make a few bob and to have a, uh, still have his quality of life. It depends on his personal aspiration of as the major shareholder. Now, once the shareholder's decided what he wants out of life, and if he wants to do, he believes that the right thing at that stage is to do an IPO, he has to take a different view on life. And what he'll do, uh, what he has to do, he to talk to his uh, advisors. And get a view from them independent view as to what he be, what he believes whether the company is capable or probably should do could be able to do an i p o and the, the way it would start off would be to do an internal perhaps review of the business and how it's grown over the years in terms of its profitability percentages and where it's been, and then decide whether it's feasible and will show growth to do an IPO subject to certain issues which have to be dealt with. And once that's been decided, uh, uh, they would probably go and talk to, the, um, talk to the firm of lawyers and the firm of auditors, uh, who's probably got his, he's really got a firm of auditors, but to make sure that the company is being well audited because uh, what is needed part of the process is a three-year audited program uh, three years three years of audited accounts right ifrs and then they would go and have a chat with potential nomads nominated advisors who specialize in aim and look after the interests of, of companies and also act as brokers and th- and if the um, if the um, nomad thinks it's feasible, practical, they will then get involved and do it properly. The fundamental issue is that people, companies and shareholders that want to do a listing haven't got a clue how hard it is, how long it takes, and what the impact is, no matter what they say on their business while they're doing the process of listing and how it could impact on the business. Right. And that's a fundamental issue. People need need to understand that you need to have, you should, in my opinion, you should take a year before you do a listing and try and put your board together and people together as if it was a public company, including non-execs, so they can train and see they can run the list because they need them during the last three, four months of a hectic IPO process before the listing. Right. Now, what is needed... To do a listing, you need to have auditors, you need to have lawyers, you need to have a you need to have a, a reporting accountant, and what is needed in 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 terms of documentation, you're going to need three year set of accounts, audited. You're going to need what is called a long form report, which is prepared by next another firm of accountants who reviews your business, from bottom top to bottom. See me how many times you go to the toilet, and. Uh, <laughs> See how you you'll look at your internal controls, how you run your business, look at your uh, intellectual property rights, look at all other issues, uh, and how you uh, and, and how you run your cash flow to determine whether how capable, how feasible your business is. You're also going to need the lawyers to review all legal issues around in the business, in case any court cases, any uh, copyrights, and all this type of stuff to make sure that everything legal is fine. And you're going to need your reporting accountants to review once it's ready to do a 15-month cash flow to see how your business is going to be subject to what you want to raise, how your business is going to be over the next 15 months. Now, for institutions to decide whether to list your go to list your business, they're going to look at certain issues. They first want to see you have a solid management team. You have a, a um, What's you're going to need a solid management team you need to have uh your products need to be need a proven concept you need a as i say a solid management proven concept you need to have a a, a, a sizable marketing opportunity and you need very importantly to have a differentiated proposition yes and taking besides that you need then to, under, to understand how much money you need to raise and why and the rationale for raising money is it for acquisition? Is it for extra working capital? And is it to incentivize staff by giving them share options and that type of thing? So that's fully understood why and how you want to do a listing for.
0: Absolutely. And once
1: you've got all that in place, then the hard work starts by everybody trying to do review and, and uh, the work that they've got to do to substantiate everything, which I've just mentioned. Yes. And yes. then once that's done, part of done, you you, you need to also have something called a, a FP, a FPP, Financial Process, Products, Procedures and Processes, Documentation, which is all part of this, to satisfy the nomad that everything's in order. Then the nomad and the lawyers will start preparing the admission document.
0: Let me pause there for one moment. So, again, the nomad is a nominated advisor. So, because that, that term, right, so carry on. And also, is the nomad, so the, in the U.S., when we talk about SEC listings and things, they talk about the underwriters and things. So, the, the nominated advisors, do they play that role of the so underwriters? Nomad the nomad is not
1: an underwriter. So,
0: that, so that you, got, were you at some point, will you bring in underwriters? Or are, you call, are you calling them brokers here? At what yeah, point but, do you-
1: they don't normally underwrite AIM listings as far as I'm aware. Here.
0: Okay, so t- talk to me. Okay, well then, talk about talk to me about how the we're going to get into this in a moment about how how you set a price and then how they do the book build, and yeah, then yeah. how they how they carry out that process. Because in yeah, the U.S. in the U.S. for SEC listings, it's the the underwriter will do a bit of research and a report, and then they'll do the the buying and then the book building and the selling. So they underwrite it in that regard, but in AIM it works differently. But
1: that's normally on AIM, from my experience, mm-hmm. is that once the uh, all the various reach a certain stage. There'll be preliminary discussions with the by the nomad with various institutional investors. Okay, uh, as to what they, if they, and who's be interested. And then often, they, then they would do a, a once they're interested and they got to a certain stage, and they wonder how much money they want to raise and the price they're going to set, which is the present value of their future um, uh, profitability of a. The next two three years, yeah. they will then go do um a sh- uh, give uh, um do visits to uh, make presentations.
0: Oh, the road shows!
1: Oh, that's the words. They'll do road shows. <laughs> oh, i They'll that's do correct. road shows uh, to the various with to the various institutions, with and where uh, the major shareholder, the CEO, the chairman will make presentations uh, to them as to their business and for the institution to understand the, the the personalities of the people and whether they believe they have the ability and the right to or, or achieve what they want and then once the road shows are finished they will uh, decide and, and they decide they want to invest the nomad will review everything uh the invest in various uh, investment uh, prescri- uh, from the various uh institutions and other shareholders and decide uh, uh how much whether uh, the whether the whether the the whether the, sh- the, 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 the number of shares that they have covered the, the the money they require, or there's been an overrun or there's less, uh, yes, they, and they then decide whether to take the company forward and float it to uh, do the flotation, depending on on how much money was raised and what the and how the what the impact of the company has been in the marketplace with regard to the potential investors.
0: Right. Okay. So, so the, the different element here is that they're not, the, the nomads are not actually taking on that element of risk that some of the underwriters take on. Yeah. Okay. I get it. So, and then also I want to come back to the question around pricing. You mentioned they'll do the, uh, you know, they'll value they'll do the discounted cash flows. Yeah. They'll, they'll they'll, dis, they'll, they'll assess the future value of the cash flows. Now, some of the statistics I've seen where they say uh, tech boom aside, that in terms of the there seems to be art and science to pricing the the shares during an ipo so there's a certain school of thought that says and the more, and the statistics show that oftentimes for the us and the uk the average shares on day one will bounce up by about 20 percent over the years and then they may or may not sustain that over the next five years but so there's some things there seems to be something in the psyche of the the interested parties to it's better to, to have it under under that have the price too low than too high initially. But tell me, so why I'm asking the question. Go for it.
1: Fundamental rule, as I'm concerned, when you when you when you when you do your forecasts related, you must. I always emphasize that you should forecast reduce your forecast by least over you should overstate your actual by by more than ten percent of your forecast. Okay. If you don't say what I'm saying, you should always over, you should always understate your forecast by at least ten percent. What you think you're going to do? Okay,
0: so the the the, the under promise, over deliver principle. Correct,
1: that's the word. Under promise and over deliver. Otherwise, if you do the other around, your share price will crash after the first year, and you hardly ever recover.
0: Right. So the the other the other school of thought in here says, well, some people say, if I'm the founder of the company and I'm looking at this as an as an exit, I'm looking for this as an exit, then why would I want to leave 20? If I'm a company and I want to exit, I wouldn't list. I
1: wouldn't want okay, to well, I wouldn't invest in you.
0: Well, so, okay. So some of the, well, so one of the rationales for, for listing in general is, some of it is for some of the existing shareholders and founders, if they want, so if you're doing an IPO, my understanding, right? Uh, the, the kind of primary is if you're raising funds for the company, and then there's a secondary where, in that, you can have the money. Some some of the money comes in to help some of the existing shareholders exit and sell. To others. Yeah, yeah. So, if I am the latter, if I'm an existing shareholder in a privately owned company that's going public, and I want to exit, I may some would say maybe a little disappointed that I've left 20% of my money on the table because the shares on day one when I sold they just bounced by 20%. Now, that's one. That's the other. The other argument. Now, now, in reality, some of the people say, look, this is the first real liquidity event that this founder or owner has had. So while they may be disappointed at leaving 20% on the table, the fact that they've crystallized what were up to that point paper gains <laughs> is enough to assuage that concern.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some, uh, obviously, the major sh- founder shares must stay in the business. Otherwise, if he hasn't confidence in his business, nobody should invest in it. You might have uh, some family members or some older members who, who have got five percent, small small percentages, who want out, and that's not a problem. At the end of the day, you know, in, in the normal course, but the major shareholder, uh, in with, unless it's exceptional circumstances, uh, and he's got eighty percent, he might want to divert, he might want to divest a bit in order to lower his percentages, and and, and provided the investors agree to it, uh, but he's got to have a, still has to have, uh, and also the 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 major investor would like to have maintained control anyway if he's still in the business so it's, a, it's a getting the balance right you know right so it's
0: kind of a, they're kind of they're kind of held in with tied in with a key man or key person yep. sort of clause right okay yep. and then there's a lot more we could get into on that okay and so then the they, so they list. Okay, so we're talking about this in the run up to the listing, right? So the company's getting ready. They've done all the preparation. They've got these advisors, and, and now they get up to the days, the final days before the listing. And then, what, what? Tell, give me a sense of what that feels like when you did it for your own companies, and when you're advising other companies. What, what's the feeling like when, when the run up to that and then when they're on the when, on the, the the exchange floor and they ring the bell?
1: Well, so first of all, it's a major relief to get to that point. Of, <laughs> uh, and. and, and, and I still can't emphasize that people don't fully understand until they've done it, the time it takes, what it takes out of you personally, uh, day-to-day meetings at the end in order to get the, the admission document right, get the money in and and fully understand. and it. Sometimes it impacts on the business because you've taken your eye off the ball for six months.
0: Right. So just just to pick up on that for a moment. So I've done a lot of capital raising for earlier stage companies in the venture space. And we advise the CEOs of startups that are raising, you know, three, five, 10 million or whatnot to say, look, the CEO should should plan. The CEO and executive should plan on maybe half of their time in the next six months while they're doing this capital raise will be tied up with meeting investors, asking these questions, and it was going to pull you away from being a CEO running the business. You're actually answering to a different audience, and it's going to take a lot of time. And, and you can't always delegate a lot of that out. Some of it can be shared, but so would you see? Is it proportionate to that, or is it even more?
1: Yes, I agree. That's so what I always say. I've said I started off saying you should run, You should set up your business, at least here, as a public company. Bring in your non-execs who could help. Who've got experience of IPOs, can advise, etc. Down the line until uh, you list, so that uh, you take a bit of pressure off the, of the CD management, in the degree.
0: And so, is that some of the work that you do now when you come in, having done, having led IPOs yourself and advised on a number of them? Is that some of the the support yeah, yeah. The you
1: bring? I mean, I was getting, for example, uh, I've done about the last one, which didn't happen. Though I was getting involved in a, in a company from um, uh, Bangkok uh with COVID spoilt it and uh, uh my role was kind of senior non-exec was to to assist over here to to, to deal with issues um actually with another guy as well who was going to be the chairman a local guy we, we were both try to run it and help getting the issues all the uh deal with the with the nomad the broker and ensure that everything and the lawyers ensure that everything was being done correctly to assist the others who had no idea and the time differences and all this type of stuff to see how we could, assist. but unfortunately, COVID spoiled it.
0: <laughs> okay, right. And in general, with the IPOs, part of the role of the, of the exec team and the non-exec team, the board is facing off with the regulators as well, or the advisors are facing off with, facing to the regulators, right?
1: Only the nomad will deal with the regulators.
0: Okay. The <laughs> and before you go public, and then after, and then it's on the then it's on the shoulders of the of the the execs and non-execs. Absolutely,
1: right? also. The, the The nomad is responsible to the stock exchange for the list for the company that's listening, and it's the role of the board to ensure that everything's complied with and if necessary, where necessary to inform the nomad immediately in order to ensure that various uh, RNs announcements are made in time if there's any issues which impact on the on the, on the company and its shareholders, if for example, there's been a major issue that's affecting and affect the profitability or affect the forecast, or there's been a, a removal of a director, or there's any other issue which is fundamental to the business going forward. And you've got to make an, you have to buy, in terms of the stock change rule, make an announcement as soon as possible uh, for all shareholders to be aware.
0: And just, just point of clarification RNS announcements, what does the RNS stand for there?
1: Uh, Reuter News Service.
0: I see. Okay. <laughs> and and so just to picking up on the main theme of the the conversation here and what's the role of the, the chair during the ipo process
1: well the rather the chair is uh the similar to, to, to any i mean it's, it's, his role is to ensure that uh the company still be run properly and uh that the, the that the uh i mean it's no different is still, still going to run and and ensure that the business will run properly and uh He'll play a role, where possible, in uh, uh, fundamentally uh, in a lot of cases his role will be to talk to in- shareholders, institutional potential shareholders, and give them, you know, advise them, as to give them a view on the business and get their, and, and and give them, tell them what's happening in the business and get their support. And the other <laughs> sorry, apologies. <laughs>
0: One other point which I picked up from your articles, Frank has written a number of articles on this subject. He literally wrote articles, you know, the, the taking a company through IPO and beyond and how do you form an effective board. And it, it's basically like official documentation that I would find from the Institute of Directors or something like that. But so one of the points you mentioned in one of your other interviews might have been with the Sunday Times or something was that also in, in the run up to the IPO, the company may bring on a heavyweight CEO to add a bit of ballast and gravitas to help. Show that they're ready for this next stage of their yeah. growth uh, in the eyes of investors, and I imagine. I mean, I've seen that as well in my own experience. But yeah, that's yeah. another part of it too, right?
1: I mean, uh, 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 what could happen? It happened, as I wrote about it. But sometimes, you, after you know, going forward, you'll find maybe the founder is not is not able or not capable. Uh, doesn't believe he's, he's got the right skills to take it being a public from a public company point of view, you might have other technical skills in the business. And if he's clever, he will bring in a high a heavyweight CEO to work with him, to, to, to bring more credibility and to know how to take the business forward in the proper way. Uh, and, and, and not, and, and the, the founder would take on a role maybe of his own forte, be it a sales director or, or production, whatever the case is. But, uh, They'll work together, but, but the the CEO will uh, the new CEO if he's a heavyweight and he's got certain public company experience and he's got other experience will will we'll show will show the leadership.
0: Okay, great. And then just to, to infuse a bit of the emotion into it, so when you're there and you've been there a number on a number of occasions with your own businesses and advising others, then when the the big uh, initial public offering, the listing day comes and you're ringing the bell on the exchange, what is that like?
1: Where's the champagne. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a relief. Uh, everybody's worked bloody hard to get it to that point and it's uh, and it's fantastic to see the the price going up uh in what people what to what the perception is uh, in the marketplace if it's if people the, the the price going up is 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 the determinator that the company is well regarded now in in, in the in the community in the financial community and that the price uh, is what has been anticipated by the nomad going forward in the short term
0: okay great and you mentioned i think we talked about uh the, the level of enthusiasm and emotion there will be relief and the level of enthusiasm and emotion kind of depends on <laughs> how, how the pricing goes
1: yeah 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 uh, that's uh that's what i said uh, yeah if if if, if 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 the price goes up as perceived it's a hell of a f- fantastic feeling and uh that from being worth nothing to worth a couple of million by a ring of a bell, by seeing the price going up, it's a tremendous nice feeling to have.
0: Right. That brings us to another point. One of the deal mentors I follow, the guy's done over a thousand deals, is ex Bear Stearns, his experience is that just the simple act of taking a private company public. Can aside from the bump you get on day one in the in the official price of the shares, in his view, that taking a private company with with illiquid largely illiquid shares and then listing it and going public can increase the value of that company by 50 percent, just yeah. just simply by making it more liquid. That would that align with your experience in terms of? It
1: could happen. Uh, depends on the market. I'm coming, generally, the shares in are not that liquid as the main board company, because it's very strictly held by in. in family in small you know family business family there's, not a,
0: there's not a huge float out there in the market day to day okay. right
1: that is, that is one of the one of the disadvantages of aim but uh improving as as more 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 Shares she are sold at the end of the day and, okay. and et cetera.
0: And <laughs> just to say what the float is, it's a term I picked up from actually from Wolf <laughs> of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, but it's just the amount of kind of freely available uh, shares that are in the market to be traded rather than those that are held by others. So basically, the, so what about the float is if there's only a 10% or it's a very small amount percentage of shares available in the market to be traded, you could essentially, someone could essentially corner the market by just purchasing 5 or 10% of the shares. You could basically... Uh, uh, spike the price or or up or down yeah, yeah. for companies
1: okay uh, generally speaking generally speaking uh aim companies uh, the free float is around 10 to, there's no limit no limit so to, uh, today they're like i they want to see around 15 percent free float of aim companies before it used to be you could have five or ten there's no but they'd like to see today at least 15 percent free float
0: great okay so then as we, as we kind of wind down this, this part of the, the journey. So then once the company goes public, they had the private, I, I, ideally they've had the year before they prepared, they brought on, they, they kind of, this, they solidified and, and, and got their governance and controls and placing out the right players on board. Now they go public and then, you know, the culture must change there and they're accountable to some other stakeholders. So what is that like in terms of the compliance governance reporting requirements investor relations and stakeholder management how's the world what's the world like on on day ipo plus one
1: well the ipo plus one uh the company had more or less put out a forecast and uh you need to ensure that you're meeting the company's been run properly meeting its forecast if not it's got to come out with a statement uh, also what happens is not again uh, uh as a chairman you can have uh, discussions general discussions with uh, institutional shareholders as to uh, if they, you know, uh, they want to know how the business is going. But you've got to be careful that you don't give certain information to others and not to others. But if it's going, according, you know, but you you can, what normally happens, to, what's, what What normally today what happens is that you've got, uh, you, you, I'm sure you're going to talk about it, but you got got uh, PR people and uh, who... You, you you keep constantly uh, give information about new things happening within the business, new products or new customers, and provide it. Uh, it's sent out at the same time to all uh, in in our in a statement, uh, and, and all shareholders see it. And that's a, then. It's no problem in terms of uh, of of giving divulging this type of information. It's got to be available to all shareholders at the same time.
0: Right. Okay, and one other point just backing up for a minute because I forgot to ask this and it's it's interesting.
1: I'm sorry, I'm oh, okay. uh, PR plays a vital role up to the listing process because they keep on putting out information about the company, how it's doing, what it's done, and who the people are, who the management is, and et cetera, at all times, so that it's kept, so that uh, uh, all potential investors and shareholders are kept abreast of the, current, of the situation as far as the company's concerned, which helps.
0: Right. Well, that takes us. I wanted to back up a moment and talk about you talk about the the hard effort and the time and and all that. I wanted to ask about the costs for the company, because we're here debates in where I operate. People talk about, you know, should we do an IPO anymore? Should we do a trade sale? Could we try to reverse into a SPAC, basically get acquired by some already publicly listed shell company rather than us going public ourselves? So from your perspective, in terms of companies, when they list on the AIM market, that part of that market, what are the headline costs all in to go in and do that?
1: Well, it's very interesting. I mean, it's gone up like hell prices, uh, cost of listing on AIM. I mean, I don't think you can get away with any listing on AIM today unless, unless under £500,000. That's excluding fundraising. Right. Which is around 5% of money raised.
0: Yep. Okay. I was going to ask about that. All right. So that makes sense. So you're talking on a, on a listing of if you're taking a company, if it's got a well, – let's say if it's a – I don't know when they list the market cap. If, if how much how much would a company typically raise uh, when they're doing the IPO? I know they come out at a certain market cap, but how much would they typically raise?
1: Uh, oh, it varies. It can vary between uh, 20 to 50 million or more. Depends on the on the size and wh- whether they have potential. What their plan is after listing to so do an acquisition or or to do uh, to for working capital. But it's, it could be 20 to 50 million okay so you're talking you're
0: talking a capital raising fee there between 1 million and 2.5 million on top of the half a million in the other administrative charge yeah, 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 yeah. okay because yeah. So, so what i've seen from the in the u.s for firms i think it was between 20 to 50 million and above and the sec side they say it tended to come in around the underwriters would take about seven for the overall the cost would be about seven percent so it's kind of roughly in terms of what you're saying there. okay that's really fascinating and, and Frank, you wanted to talk to us about the corporate governance code for the AIM market.
1: Yes, uh, fundamentally, uh, AIM companies, uh, the code used for AIM companies. Mean, Ninety-nine percent of AIM companies is the Quoted Company Alli- uh, (QCA) Quoted Company Alliance code, which is sort, which is basically uh, evolved around ten principles. And fundamentally, the code is to ensure the companies. Uh, need uh, need to companies need to deliver growth in long-term shareholder value, and this requires an effective, efficient, and in and and dynamic management structure, accompanied by good communication, in order to promote confidence and trust with stakeholders. And the ten points of the corporate governance code uh, sets out these points to to assist companies to achieve. What uh, they should do in terms of corporate governance for AIM companies, and, and as opposed to the other, co- the main corporate governance code, which is used for for main board companies. So that is what is uh, used for uh, by AIM companies today, uh, or for a long, long while, in, in, to to ensure that they're complying with the corporate governance code for uh, which is uh, uh, going forward.
0: Okay, great. And how does that? differ from the the main code is it is it a lighter touch simpler version of yes, it
1: or it's a lighter touch simpler version again from the qca
0: oh is, is the qca is that the is that the, the company alliance oh okay so that's another industry body
1: yeah they, 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 it's another industry that focuses on on uh looking after the interests of aim companies and okay
0: perfect very helpful to know thank you frank okay so Great. Okay. Now, we, you, you mentioned earlier about the number of exit options or that that a founder could take or the number of uh, growth options a founder could take, rather. They could continue to grow it uh, privately. They could IPO. They could do a trade sale. I know you've been involved in trade sales as well. Just be curious to get some of your comments around thoughts on doing an IPO versus a trade sale and or just your experience with uh, that.
1: Many years ago, but fundamentally... A trade sale would be done compared to, as opposed to an IPO, if the founder feels that he's had enough of business, he's reached a certain level where he doesn't want to be involved in business anymore, and he wants to take a back seat and retire, and has reached a stage whereby he feels by on a trade sale he have sufficient funding for himself and his family to take it easy for the rest of his life. Uh, whereas, if uh, in terms of an IPO, if he's still ambitious. And he believes his products have got growth, or he believes that he uh, can make an acquisition to make the economies of scale. Uh, and but he and he needs the funding. Uh, he serve a double whammy. He can get the, raise the funds, do the acquisition, take the business to another level, and sell it, uh, carry on growing it, and sell it maybe in five years' time as a listed company.
0: Right. Okay, so I see a lot of companies take the different approaches there.
1: Yeah, it depends on the founder and his view of life at that stage, where he is in his in his growth, in his phase. And, and I would
0: say, and that from where I sit, I'd say his. I say his or her. I work with a lot of female founders as well, and they've got asp- similar sort of aspirations. Wonderful. So t- turning back now, as we wind wind down, so turning back to you and your own journey. Uh,
1: you mentioned uh, you mentioned females. Yes. Uh, which we haven't mentioned, and it's very what's happening at the moment in the marketplace, that the in terms of companies today, this, there's a big issue with diversity. Yes, and uh, they want to see publicly thirty-five to forty percent females or ethnic minority people on boards.
0: Yes, right, sure. Well, a lot of the research backs up and shows that diverse boards tend to make better decisions, better results, and all that. And I. I have my own kind of perspectives on how that can be done in a way that's that's fair and just for for all those involved. That's probably a topic for another podcast. So, but we'll, well, um, in terms of coming back to so part of your own experience that that's part of it. And then I guess I would ask you just on that note. So when you're when you are chairing a board, and if you're looking to appoint different directors and things. I, it sounds like you've got an eye, you're aware and you're looking out there to see, are we? do we have a nice, uh, is our board diverse, representative and things? And yeah. have we got capable, qualified people around the boardroom table? So yeah. I imagine that you, you consider all those factors when you're interviewing candidates and making decisions. In that you regard. have to, you have to. Okay. All right. And just coming back to your own experience. So in terms of what do you, what do you know now that you wish you knew 20 or more years ago?
1: Oh, difficult. What I knew. I, I I mean, I've gone along a journey, and along the journey I've learned a lot of things. I've had some good things, I've had some bad things, but you just got to adapt. And uh, and whether you want to be, the question is, the only question is whether you want to be a serial chairman or NED, or stay with one or two companies uh, down the line, and, and depending... I think if you were if you were involved in private companies, you could do it, but in the public company arena, it doesn't work that way. You've got to you've got to have be able to adapt and move on.
0: Right. Well, there's something about in in the corporate code and things. Which you could tell me in your experience. There's what the code says, and then there's what your experience is. If a if a, if a, a director is involved in a board of a company, say a public company or any company really, if you're a non executive director, it's presumed to have a bit of a certain amount of independence and then if you're on that board for many, many years, then the sense is that after a certain point in time you've kind of lost some of your independence from the company, and therefore can you still fulfill the role and obligation i well,
1: think I think you need days in the rules you gotta after nine years you've gotta resign from the company and move on
0: and and in your experience, would you say that it does that time frame what's in the code does that feel about right? Is it too long too short uh
1: It depends on the company but sometimes a bit too long
0: right. Okay. Uh, that's kinda of what I was wondering. Okay. And uh great. And so what are you what are you kind of most enthusiastic about now and what what comes next for you? What are you looking forward to?
1: I've still got a lot of energy and I love to work with people and help businesses grow and uptake it to the next level. And I would like to continue what I'm doing as long as I can and uh help businesses and executive and boards and ceos grow and utilize my experience to uh, which i've which I've, which I've learned over the years and got the scars and the t-shirt as they say right uh, take it forward and, and, and make things happen the right way and use my contacts in the city with brokers nomads if necessary to assist there as well
0: Right. Okay. And is there anything else you'd like to add? Some any other closing thoughts? Or, and then let us know how can we follow and keep in touch with you, Frank.
1: If there's anything else you know, anything I can add value somewhere uh, with my experience and what I what I've just explained, I don't stand on ceremony, and I just like to work with people and be nice to meet up at the, ty- the different times and have coffee or lunch or whatever in order to see where if I can assist. It'd be a pleasure.
0: Great. And I, okay. So, and I know you've got your website, so Is it franklewis.co.uk? Yeah, I got my website. And people can find you on LinkedIn under Frank Lewis as well? Yes. That's great. Well, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to keeping in touch soon.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. All the best.
0: That's all for this episode. Tune in next time for the latest insights and hidden gems from the world of business. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. For any feedback, suggestions, or questions you'd like us to cover, you can email us at krego at lxauk.com and on LinkedIn at karl-rego. Until next time, onwards and upwards, and thank you for listening. Rigo's Review, signing off.